Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Would you join with me silently as we just come together and, and our pastor's prayer that dear heavenly father your word says you are our light and our salvation and whom shall we fear for the lord is the stronghold of our life and whom shall we be afraid for when evildoers assail us to eat up our flesh and our adversaries and our foes it is they who stumble and fall and though an army may encamp against us our hearts shall not fear And though war arise against us, we will be confident for one thing that we have asked of the Lord. And that what we will seek after is that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. To gaze upon the beauty of our Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide us in his shelter in the day of trouble. And he will conceal us under the cover of his tent. And he will lift us high upon a rock. There is no God but you. And in love you have chosen and called us to be your people. In love you have adopted us as your own. In love you have determined to conform us into the image of your son Jesus. And we join with the psalmist who sings, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because you were foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons, the stars, which you have set in place, what is it that man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we recognize that you have sent your Son, who is that Son of Man, that one who is your glory. And may our hearts reflect that joy this morning and rejoice and worship. We humbly ask that as you send your Spirit, that he may empower us to teach us and to guide us in the way that you've set before us this morning. And may you be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 6 as we continue on. This is our 26th message on the Gospel of Mark, and we're slowly working our way through it. We're looking at his later Galilean ministry before he's heading to Jerusalem. The title of the message is Hardened Hearts in the Midst of Miracles, Mark chapter 6, 45 through 56. And I want for a matter of review is just to go back and try to understand exactly what we're trying to do through the book of Mark. To truly understand and apply the Bible to our situations today, it's really necessary first for us to understand and to interpret what it means to those that it was originally written to. 
Back in January, Dustin in his introductory message on Mark had said, when you read Mark, it becomes clear that he has one goal. And that one goal is to introduce the reader to the person of Jesus Christ. This is no ordinary letter or just a recollection of past events, but a bold proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Mark is not writing a biography, but recording the ministry and message of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He is mainly writing to a Gentile readership, most likely the Church of Rome, during a time of great persecution and tribulation that's rising up against the Christians of those times. Mark's purpose in writing is stated in Mark 1.1 when he writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his thesis statement, and everything written afterwards is Mark's proof and evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. The Gospel of Mark is a collection of the life of Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God through His teaching, His healings, His miracles, His authority over the spiritual and natural world, His authority over the interpretation of Scripture, the religious leaders, and even His authority over life and death. So far in our study of Mark, we have seen Jesus display who He was to the crowds, to his family, to his neighbors, to religious leaders and his disciples. And in each instance, you may recall, there is a mixed reaction of acceptance and rejection, astonishment and fear, gladness and struggles. People are struggling to comprehend who Jesus is. What is Jesus or who is Jesus, his true identity? The crowds struggle with messianic fever and selfishness, desiring to make him king, to make him the one, the military political leader who will just kick out Rome and set Israel and restore it to its rightful place. His family and his neighbors are struggling with familiarity. They think he's insane and crazy and out of his mind, as you may recall. The religious leaders obviously are struggling with pride, control, and power. Jesus is upsetting the apple cart, so to speak, and it seems like he's wrestling control from them. And today we'll see that even his most closest disciples struggle with realizing Jesus' true identity. In last week's passage, Mark demonstrates that Jesus exhibited great compassion towards the crowd and towards his disciples as the good shepherd by giving rest to his weary disciples, by teaching those that were lost, confused, and mistaken, and providing food that was needed to satisfy the hunger of a very large crowd. But who is Jesus continues to be the theme of Mark's narrative. The men in the wilderness are not the only ones who are mistaken about who Jesus is. In today's passage, as I said, Mark writes that even the disciples were unsure of Jesus' identity. In this passage today, we're going to see Jesus in action. Mark is a writer of action. He's not really writing about Jesus' messages, about his sermons. There's not a lot of those types of things. It's immediately, he went and did this. We see Christ praying. Christ comforting, and Christ healing. And so, Father, we come this morning, we truly want to understand a book that was written 2,000 years ago to a people so different from us, but yet very, very similar. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would make this passage come alive. It's, again, it's a familiar portion of Scripture, one that many times we read and we just skate over because we understand it's one of the Bible stories that a child may learn. And so we just think, well, that's what it is, how great, and then we go on. But, Spirit, I pray that our hearts will rest and our minds will just wrestle with this passage. And, Lord, may we respond to your working this morning as we engage with your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So here we are, Mark chapter 6. Again, we're going to get a story of the disciples in a boat, on a water, on the lake, and Jesus. Now this is a little bit different than one in Mark chapter 4 or so, I think that we saw, or, or maybe even a little bit earlier, in which there was a storm and Jesus was asleep. There's some similarities with that story and there's major differences. I want to give you six observations. The first one is going to find in the first two verses. As Jesus prays, as disciples are working. Join with me in verse 45. It's on the screen. It's also in your Bible. Mark chapter 6. Where Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. As you may recall from last week, there was a messianic uprising after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men. We don't see that in Mark, but we did see where the Apostle John, in his narrative of this event, records that the men desired to take Jesus by force and to make him king. However, Jesus, recognizing that his time is not there and the selfishness, and that was not his purpose, is able to dispel the crowd after sending his disciples away to the other side of the lake by boat. Interestingly, Mark makes note that Jesus made his disciples leave. Other translations use the word constrained. Jesus constrained his disciples. The Greek word translated actually means to force, to make them do something. It seems that even the disciples were themselves were struck with messianic fever and are reluctant to go. Maybe they're persuaded by the crowd and caught up in that emotion and fever. But they obeyed Jesus at his insistence. They got in the boat and they began to sail and to row to the other side of the lake, which was about a four-mile journey. After dismissing the crowds, Mark tells us, Jesus heads up to the hills for some alone time with God the Father. You may recall that praying and prayer was a source of rest and power and comfort for Jesus. And praying was a regular pattern of ministry, as it should be for you and I. Mark records at least three times in which Jesus went to pray during times of crisis. The first one we saw in the first chapter of Mark after an early surge of healing and exercising demons. We see it here in Mark 6, and we'll see it later in Mark chapter 14 as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his betrayal. It's a side note, it's encouraging for you and I, or it should be, to know that Jesus is our high priest, is always praying for us. Romans tells us, who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Just as Jesus was praying for his disciples, praying for comfort and praying for power, he prays for us. In Hebrews 7, it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus prays his disciples are working. And number two, the second observation follows in verse 
47, where Jesus notices their struggle. As he's praying, he notices that something is not right. And when evening came in verse 47, the boat was out in the sea and he was alone on the land, speaking of Jesus. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And as I read that, I had to ask myself, how in the world did Jesus see them? He was up on a mountain far away. They were working their way four miles outside of land on the sea. And here it is. We're going to see later that it's the fourth watch. It's dark. How in the world does Jesus look and see that they were making no headway in there? I think this demonstrates once again, Mark doesn't write things just to write them. I think what we see here that Mark is sharing with us, that Jesus is something greater than just man. He just didn't eat his carrots and have great eyesight. This is Jesus. This is God who's omniscient, and he knows what's going on. He's aware of the problem. Christ is not hindered, in this case, by human limitations. He becomes aware of the disciples' dilemma. And as I said before, it was a four-mile journey from boat. And from time they left after the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably about late afternoon, they had been struggling almost eight to nine hours trying to traverse this four-mile journey through the water, and they were just not making any headway. They were roaring against the wind for quite a while. They were in no danger from a storm like the last one, so I don't think there was any fear. There was probably anger. There was probably some annoyance. They were probably upset that here they were, were rowing and Jesus is back on the land. Why is he doing this to us? We would have rather stayed with the people. But here they are. They're exerting so much physical effort in rowing and they're not making much headway. And not only that, the wind starts to cause them to go off course. In the same way, though, isn't it encouraging to you and I that Jesus is always aware of our struggles. He's aware of our dilemmas, our tribulations, and our circumstances. Again, we have a high priest who knows what we go through. The Bible says that he can sympathize with us. There's nothing that takes him out of the scope. Have you ever felt like you're all alone? Felt like you're struggling, you're working, and Jesus and God just doesn't seem to be there? Let me tell you, he does notice he is aware not only does he notice and he wear, but number three, Jesus comes to comfort and encourage them. He's not going to leave them alone. Jesus, you know, could take the eight-mile walk. It's about eight-mile walk to go along the coast. But Jesus isn't going to do that. He's going to do something much more wonderful. Look at verse 48b. It says it was about the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea... They thought it was a ghost and crowd out. For they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, and what great words, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus comes in the fourth watch, which is about 3 to 6 a.m. It has been a long struggle. It's been a long night. They're tired. They're probably on edge. They're probably saying, it's your turn. You can imagine their arms must be dead. And the last thing they expected was to see someone begin to walking on water, especially even Jesus. 
When Mark writes he meant to pass by them, he does not mean that Jesus was going to actually walk past the boat and not help them, but that Jesus wants to be seen by them and maybe even gauge their reaction. They think they see a phantom. They think they see a ghost. They're not sure what they're seeing. Maybe they're so sleep-deprived and tired and hungry that they're not thinking straight, but they don't recognize Jesus through the winds and the waves. It keeps them from recognizing Jesus. Or maybe they couldn't even imagine and expect, how, why would you think this is even Jesus? I mean, how could Jesus, a man, be walking on water? It's never been done. It's never been exhibited. They've seen him do some great and wonderful things, but walking on water? But Jesus is able to suspend the laws of nature by walking on the water and the sea, uninhibited, not only by the winds that were keeping them from rowing, but also from the waves. Jesus is walking straight, strong, and forward. The winds and the waves do not bother him at all. I believe Mark is recording this event to point out that Jesus is supernatural. Again, he's no ordinary Messiah. He's not just some military, political, cultural, social leader ready to rescue them, but he's something so much more. He's more than just a man. Yes, Mark has been demonstrating the humanity of Jesus by recording Jesus walking and talking, teaching, eating, resting and sleeping and praying with his disciples, but also Jesus is able to walk on water. He's able to make bread out of nothing and fish out of nothing. He's able to heal and to cause the dead to rise up. He's both human and divine, amen? He is Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God. This is what Mark is emphasizing. And many times we can read these miracle stories and say, wow, but yet we need to sit there and contemplate them. And that's what we're going to see is the disciples' problem, is they're witnessing all these wonderful, great events of Jesus, but yet it's not sinking in. They still are struggling to understand who Jesus is. In seeing Jesus, they, they respond in fear, not recognizing who He is, thinking it's just a ghost, a phantom. They can't even comprehend, even after seeing all the miracles that they themselves have done and performed and the feeding of the 5,000. They could not even comprehend that Jesus would be walking on water. But Jesus here assures them, takes the moment. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't make them feel bad. But he just says, it is I. It is I. I'm here. I'm in the flesh. I think that kind of points again to an event in the resurrection where Christ comes after the resurrection and still Thomas says, what? Well, I've got to touch his hand and touch his side. I've got to see him. Jesus eats fish to show that he's human and that he has a body. Once again, they doubt that. Cannot even comprehend. And he assures them that he's in the flesh. It is I, he did not have to say his name. Like sheep who recognize the voice of the shepherd, the disciples recognize the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd. And we see that they're comforted. Jesus doesn't leave them alone. And you and I should take heart in this account as we're reminded that we are not abandoned or forgotten by our Savior. But he says to draw near to him. He says to rest in him and to trust in him and have faith which leads us to the fourth point, is that the arrival of Jesus brings an end to their struggle. Look at verse 51a. It says, And Jesus got into the boat with them, and join with me, the wind, what? 
ceased. Could you imagine eight, nine hours, you're just going at it. Your arms are tired. You're just about to give up. And you're thinking, why in the world are they still rowing? Why don't they just let go? Well, they're on a sea. They're going to wind up going backward. Here they are. There's 12 of them. They're probably taking turns going on and going, going forward. But yet all of a sudden, just quiet. Here's the point. They were safe because of their obedience to him. Get in the boat. Well, we don't want to get in the boat. Well, I'm going to constrain you. I'm going to make you. I'm going to force you. Go to the other side. And then all of a sudden, here they are. And you can imagine, man, I wish we wouldn't have listened to Jesus. We should have just walked around. It would have been easier. Maybe we could have spent the night and go backwards. But Jesus wants me to go this way. Have you ever felt that way? And you're wondering, why is this happening to me? Why is this continually mean? I'm being Christ, obeying God. That's just too much work. And let me tell you, when you obey Christ, life is not easy, is it? It can become difficult. It can be something that's a big struggle. But here we see that they recognize that they're safe in obeying Him. Jesus knew what would happen when He told them to row over to the other side. He was once again testing their faith. We need to be reminded that we're always safe in Christ. The disciples are astonished that the wind calmed down after Jesus gets in the boat. I don't know why. He once, not too long ago, said, Winds, peace, be still. And a storm subsided. He said to the little girl, Rise. To the lame, he said, Walk. To the blind, he said, See. But yet they still could not comprehend. It's not recorded that Jesus commanded the wind as he did with the storm. Rather, it seemed that it was the end of the testing. As he went into the boat, other scripture tells us they were immediately on land, as if it just miraculously was there at land. Their struggling, their rowing, their working was at the end when Jesus got into the boat. He's here. They can stop working and they can rest. In the same way, you and I need to stop working and rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For His atonement paves the way for us to enter into His rest, and it's the end of the struggling to make ourselves right with God. Take your Bibles and just turn with me. Matthew chapter 11. This is a portion of Scripture that you should have underlined and begin to memorize. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus has great words to share. Look at verse 28 where He says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The arrival of Jesus in our lives brings an end to our struggle, just as Christ's arrival in the boat ends their struggle. Not that life will be difficult. Not that life will be easy. I mean, that's the lie of the prosperity gospel. But he tells us we're no longer struggling to make ourselves. That's why he says, repent from dead works, recognizing that all those good works, trying to make ourselves right with God, are no good. For you can do all that is good, but still fall short of the glory of God. You can give to the homeless. You can serve in all sorts of great social things. And they may have a common grace benefit but yet in the end they do not make one right for the bible says that all of our righteousness are what like filthy rags so rest i want to plead with you here today 
If you're still in the boat struggling to make yourself right with God, if you're still in the boat trying to make yourself right with, with your husband or with a relationship, it's time to stop. It's time to rest in what Christ has done for you. For you are safe when Christ arrives in your life. But here's now to the point what Mark is telling us. Things are wonderful. Mark has demonstrated the supernatural nature of Christ up to this point. But the most important thing that we need to understand is that when Jesus now displays His supernatural divinity, when He displays His glory and His abilities, how do you and I react? His family thought He was crazy. The religious leaders are ready to flay Him up and kill Him. The crowds are ready to make Him king. Others are just looking to get something out of Him. But how do the disciples react to this wonderful display? Well, not how you and I think they would react. Look at 51b. The reaction of fear and astonishment actually points to a spiritual condition that is not positive but negative. You see, disciples still are struggling with Jesus' identity. Even after all the public teaching, the private instructions, they struggled understanding who Jesus is. Even after being equipped and sent out on a short-term mission trip, they did not recognize who Jesus was. Even after witnessing miracle after miracle, they were confused about who Jesus was. Mark makes note that this struggle is fueled by two things. And I propose today that that struggle is fused still in the time of the Roman Christians, 40 to 50 years later after this event, and still here 2,000 years later. We first, the struggle is, struggle is fueled by a fear and astonishment that comes from a lack of understanding. Look at verse 51b. They were utterly astounded, Mark writes, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their fear and astonishment comes from a lack of understanding. Less than 12 hours, they have forgotten the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Seeing something uh, walking in the water, they could not even conceive that it was Jesus. They were not expecting something supernatural. They're ready to believe that it was superstitiously a ghost or a phantom. Pastor John MacArthur remarks that the men just 12 hours earlier ate bread that was never planted. They ate bread that was never grown. They ate bread that was never harvested or kneaded or baked. They ate fish that were never alive and never swam in the sea or even born. The fish and bread were not made of some type of substitute, but would have felt and smelt and tasted real. The God who made the universe with a word created this bread and fish in the same way. Just as the wine made from water was better than the original, Mark notes that this food satisfied the crowd and they had plenty to share on their trip home. But they had a lack of understanding. They accepted a miracle of Jesus and just could not understand. Their fear and astonishment comes from a lack of understanding. But number two, it's fueled because their lack of understanding comes from a hardened heart. 
For he says they were astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark explains that multiplying the loaves should have demonstrated Jesus' true identity to them. But neither that miracle nor the appearance of Jesus on the water could open their hearts to the reality of His divine nature. Before we too harsh though on them, you and I must remember that we too are like the disciples and once lacked understanding and were hardened of heart. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For in here again, we see the fuel that has affected the minds and hearts of people throughout history when it comes to Jesus. How is it that some people see who Jesus is and worship Him as such, and others would see Jesus and His miracles and say, let's cut them out, they can't be real, He's just a good moral teacher. How can that be? Well, you and I are the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 9. For He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually, thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? There is none who seek after God. There is none who understands, the Bible says, that we are like sheep. We have all gone astray, seeking our own way. Judges tells us that we have sought that which is right in our own eyes. The Bible tells us that we were like fools in the fact that we have said there is no God. Now you may say, I've never thought that. I've always believed in God. You may even say, wait a second, I have friends and I have relatives who tell me that they believe in God, they just don't believe in Jesus. But let me share with you, when it says a fool has said in his heart, there is no God, that's not just speaking of an atheist. What that's speaking of is men and women who live their lives as if there is no God who they will have to give account to. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that is appointed after man wants to die, then after this what? The judgment. We know this. And so for one who's a fool is one who says, I can live my life any way I want. You can look at their daytime or you can look at their checkbook. They spend their time, their money, their energies, their entertainment and say, well, I can do whatever I want. And let me tell you, there are a lot of people who profess Christ who are fools themselves. For they say, well, I can say a prayer. I said a prayer and I asked Jesus into my heart. If you look at my Bible, you can say, my, see, my parent wrote in there that I got saved, you know, when I was three years old. And as long as you say that prayer, you are fine. There are many who will teach that once you said that simple prayer, it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that's a fool. It's not a wise person. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that there's a wise man and a foolish man. They both hear the word of God, but only one does them, right? The foolish man hears the word of God, but does not obey. So let's reverse it. Then the wise man hears the word of God, but does them. We too were once fools. It's our state. Once we're born, we're fools. I pray today that there's none of you that are still foolish in your heart. 
Not that you proclaim and shake your fist and say there's no God, but that you live your life as if you'll never stand in front of Him and have to give accounts. So we were like these people. We were like them. We were like this, these disciples. We did not have understanding and our hearts were hardened. The Bible actually tells us, as we saw last week, that the, that the God of this world has blinded our minds. The aroma of Christ was a stench in our nostrils. We did not enjoy it. We did not like it. Yet by God's grace, Paul goes on to write verse 11. For verses 9 and 10 are awful, but look at verse 11. And some were such of you. But one of the greatest conjunction words in the Bible. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The disciples are still struggling with who Jesus is. We're moving to a point where the Holy Spirit will eventually open their minds and hearts. Remember, these were men who healed people. They made the lame walk. They made the blind see. They caused the deaf to hear. They exercised demons. Even Judas Iscariot did those things. They taught with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. But yet, their hearts are still hardened by a lack of understanding. We're getting to a point, Mark is leading us to where God will finally open their eyes, and such were some of us. So we can go to church, we can do great things, you can be a deacon, you can be a pastor, you can be a missionary, and still have a lack of understanding from a hardened heart. Amen? So do not let pride make you a Pharisee this morning saying, well, I see this and look at me. But there's great news coming. For God does give us understanding. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give him freely and generously. God will open our minds and hearts. And if anything, let me share this with you in your evangelistic efforts. Is we need to recognize that they don't understand. They have a hardened heart. It's not their fault. It's part of the blindness that the God of this world, Satan, has done. Our prayer is not to argue with them, to not to try to convince them and become such good debaters that we make them and constrain them and make them, force them to say a prayer, but to pray, God, would you open their hearts to the Spirit would you wash away the scales from their eyes as Paul's once were? And may they see the glorious of God. May they taste and see that God is good. And I think to emphasize this point, because it's until you and I see the beauty of Jesus, see the treasure of Jesus, that He's greater than anything else, that helps us and breaks us free from that concrete, that prevents us from seeing who Jesus is. I give you number six. Mark reminds his reader of the power and authority of Jesus. For look at 53 and 56. So we see this great miracle of Jesus. We see it does nothing but cause a hardening and a lack of understanding among his disciples. But yet still, Mark records, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret, 
and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Not recognized him as, as a savior, not recognized him as a son of God, but they recognized him physically, who he was. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides. They laid the sick in the marketplace and implored them that they might touch him, even just the fringe of his garments. As many as touched him were made well. Mark has demonstrated that there still is some faith. Maybe not faith in yet the person, but they are having a faith in what he was able to do. And I believe this is what Mark is pointing to, is that what we need to point people to is the supernatural miracles and wonders of who Jesus is. Unfortunately, we live in a time and age where people want to take the miracles of Jesus and kind of hide them. We don't want to tell others about it because we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed that God created the earth and we believe that he created it in six days and that he spoke it into existence. Why? Because science tells us something different. We're worried to think, well, yeah, there was a Noah. Oh, well, yeah, there was a great fish. Oh, yeah, well, we know. We are shrinking from recognizing. And it isn't interesting that Moses and David in the, in the Old Testament always points back to the wonderful works of God. Do not forget my works. Teach them to your children. Tell them to them. And I think that's one of the things we were talking about the millennials. I think what's happened, why people are leaving the church, is because we no longer refer them back to the wonderful miracles of Christ. You and I need to be reminded of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe that's what Mark is doing. And when his readers in Rome were reading this, and they were denying that Caesar is God, and proclaiming Jesus as him. He's saying, this is why you are. He's the son of God. He is the true Lord. See what he did over and over. It was a source of comfort, a source of encouragement for them. In the same way, you and I are being marginalized. We're being forced out of public life, forced out of social and cultural topics in life because we believe in the wonderful miracles and that Jesus is the son of God. You and I need to be reminded that Jesus prays, that Jesus notices, that Jesus comforts, and he brings us rest. Let me share with you, you and I need to be reminded of the miracles of Christ. And let me tell you, not just the miracles that are found here, because I would agree that many times it just becomes academic. And now I may be giving you a little bit more than probably I should of my own spirit and heart. Many times when we read this, we read the Bible stories that we've heard since we were children and we just go past them. And we never look any deeper. But let me tell you that the miracles of Jesus are not just found in this book. They're not just found in God's word. For Jesus had made us alive. We were once dead in our trespasses, amen? But he says, by the mercy of God, he has made us alive. He has adopted us as his children. I remind you once again of the gospel primer. You and I need to be reminded of God's wonderful works and how Jesus is displayed as the Son of God even today. For God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand, the word says. He is awesome in all of his perfection. He is absolutely righteous, uh, holy and just in all his ways. 
And he's been a good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. This morning, we are called together as this assembly to give testimony to the wonderful and greatness and beauty of our Lord. Have you thought, have you dwelt on that this morning? Or do you still have a lack of understanding? Is your heart still hard this morning to the wonders of Christ? He goes on to say that all that I have and all that I owe is to Him. He's the only worthy object of my admiration, yet the Bible tells us that we failed this mighty God so much. And instead of giving thanks to Him, instead of humbly submitting to His rule, we've rebelled against Him. And going our own way, and we've lived according to our own wisdom, we have broken countless times the letter, the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. And thinking ourselves to be wise, we've shown ourselves to be fools. Because of our own ignorance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So with apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sin and I'm bound by the power of sin and I'm enslaved to the various lusts and pleasures. And apart from Christ, I am utterly deserving and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That is true. That is real. However, let me share with you and remind you once again of the wonders and the miracles and the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. For what I could not do, God did. And doing it, He sent His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins and showing me unfathomable love. He loved me so much that He was willing to suffer the loss of His Son. And even more amazingly, He was willing to allow His Son to suffer the loss of Him at the cross. He loved me so much that He was willing to lay down His life for me. No one could ever love you more or better than Jesus. And not only that, on the third day, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit. And then he exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him, and where he prays for those that are his. That's the wonder that you and I have. And with that, when he calls us to himself and we repent of dead works, and put our trust. He forgives us of all our sins, past, present, and future. He frees us from the slavery to any and all sins. In saving me, God justified me. I have now peace with God. In justifying me, He declares me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous. He now has only love and compassion and deepest love for me. And when Christ has no a mixture of wrath against me, no other way. And everything works for our good. This is the glory and wonder of our great God and Savior. Do you understand that? Or has your heart been hardened and continued to be against Christ? You and I need to understand that Christ is the Son of God. We need to contemplate it each and every day. And it should cause us to see God and Christ even in those moments when we're afraid, even in those moments when we're struggling, even in those moments when we're unsure, is to trust in the one. Let me ask you today, in what ways do you struggle with Jesus' true identity? What do the teaching and miracles do for you today? Are you sharing them with your children? Are you contemplating? 
Are you holding them dear? How does Jesus being the Son of God, how does that help us today? How does that, that help your solution or your problem, your need? In what ways do you struggle in recognizing God's own work in your life today? For many of you, if I were to say, can you give me a testimony of what God has done this week? So many times, unfortunately, there's silence around the room. But yet you and I could even give just one prayer. I'm breathing today. God has given me His grace. And today I live by His grace. Let not your hearts be full with a lack of understanding or hardness, but see who He is and allow that to praise Him and to share that with others. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? I'd like for you to take a moment and just to pause and to consider to pray and to respond. In what way do you see Jesus today? Are you struggling with His identity? Do you see these miracles as supernatural proof of the greatness of who He is? And if so, would that cause you to trust Him, to allow Him to pray for you, to find rest and comfort? Father, You are a good Father. And I thank You for sending Your Son and I thank you for all the miracles, all the things he's done, not only written here within these pages, but Lord, in the life. For I was once such as one of those, but you have made me alive. Father, I was once hardened and a fool, but Lord, you've given me wisdom, the wisdom found in your son. And I pray that that could be the testimony of many here today. If there's some here that do not know you, I pray that you begin calling them this morning. And may they cry out and see the goodness of who you are. And would they repent of their sin and turn and put their trust and begin to follow you. Strengthen us for that walk. Allow the goodness in our lives, Lord, to be displayed to our children, to our neighbors. And Lord, may that lead to many to praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.